0: Welcome to a special edition of the Trial by Data podcast with Dr. Sam Vulturembaum, as always, and this is Josh Jones-Dilworth, your host. Sam, this week we put out the second edition of the Device Census Report from Litmus Health. It was... A lot of research went into it and a lot of phone calls and a lot of banging down the doors of device makers. Welcome, and let's talk about what the report found and what our recommendations are for those conducting clinical research in the field.
1: Hey Josh, yeah, super exciting to get this report out. We uh, obviously, put our first report out um, uh, over a year ago and had great uh, response from people downloading it and using it to help make decisions on how to power their clinical trials. So that was very exciting. And we've learned so much in the past year that we wanted to put together another report to, to highlight what we've learned. And And I think, Josh, you'll agree that the results were, were even a little bit surprising considering the way we thought the field was going.
0: A hundred percent. I mean, my, my number one takeaway is that there's still no perfect wearable and i kind of want to at some point like write the spec for the perfect wearable and just publish it so that someone hopefully will make it there's a bunch of new devices out there things have improved markedly but there are weaknesses in in the case of each brand and each skew level device on offer
1: yeah yeah and and, and, and what surprised me is that um despite all the innovations in technology, it seems that the companies are all doubling down on their analytics algorithms, which are fine for people that want to understand their battery level or their VO2 max when they exercise. But if you're trying to record something for a research study, it's not good enough to have some sort of black box algorithm that tells you how well you slept. And so it's very surprising to me that there hasn't been a single company that has really devoted the effort to producing the kind of raw data that's really required for running a clinical trial. And so we've had to do our own workarounds to get at those data, Uh, but I'm I'm just surprised that no clear winner has emerged uh, in that area from consumer level wearables.
0: I get the sense from talking with some of my friends around the industry that there really is sort of a basic computer science level challenge there, right? So if you look at the sort of clinical grade wearables, so let's think about the GeneActive, for example, which in our report made honorable mention, um, or Actigraph, which was one of the finalists and one of the devices we recommend. Both of those companies do collect pretty low-level data and are pretty transparent about their transformations. But in order to collect that level of data, there's a major user experience hurdle to get over. In the case of Actigraph, a sort of hub, a modem-like device needs to be installed in the home in order to relay information off of the Actigraph wristband. And the wristband itself is pretty bulky because it's holding a lot of data. In the case of the GeneActive, you have to plug the thing into your laptop and upload data manually, and you have to do so pretty often. So the trade-off from getting more raw and more open and more transparent data is that the device can't store that much data for that long and relaying it over Wi-Fi or cellular waves just kills the battery or overheats the hardware. And so, you know, even if you're one of these clinical wearable devices, there's an adherence and an experience challenge that is off-putting to most clinical researchers we talk with today.
1: Right. But you have to always consider what it is you're trying to measure. So I I would challenge that for most uh, applications, you don't need second-by-second measurements. And and I think a lot of the problem comes from the velocity at which uh, devices are trying to capture and transmit the data. If you're if you're running a trial and you want to know how a patient's sleeping, you know, you don't need to collect heart rate data every second. You might be able to do it every 10 seconds or every minute and then the velocity goes way down, and then you actually might be able to transmit much more raw data without having to have it transformed first. Um, Sleep's a great example where I think a lot of people think the device is somehow magically measuring sleep, uh, but it's not. Sleep is often calculated from the heart rate data and the accelerometer or the movement data, and not a single wearable company that I know of publishes the details of how that algorithm works. So when we report sleep based on any of the consumer level wearables, we're doing it through an algorithm that we don't really know how it works, right?
0: 100%. Yeah, the documentation I would say in the industry is still relatively low. And in the device census report, we talk about that under the packaging of a transparency score, which takes into account multiple related factors. But yeah, it does seem that a proprietary mindset continues to pervade. And your previous point about the level of data and what's the right level of data to get um, is also one that we come up against over and over and over again, sort of trying to balance like enough data (laughs) with a low enough cost, with an open enough platform that you can do the research and trust the results.
1: Right. Right. And, and, and I want to go back to something you said before, Josh, which was there's no perfect wearable. And, and I don't know that we ever expected there to be a perfect wearable, but one of the things that's becoming abundantly clear is that as groups want to use wearables and sensors for clinical trials, just as important as the wearable is their choice of analytic platform and the way that they define the metrics that they're measuring – and, uh, you know, you can choose the best wearable from our report or, or any of the top few wearables from our report, but if not used correctly and if the data aren't um, uh, collected and transformed correctly, then you're still going to end up with, uh, with, with, with difficulties in understanding how to apply those data to your trial. So I think that, that the analytics element is, is ultimately going to be just as important as the physical device itself.
0: I totally agree. And we see that over and over again, particularly in studies that are taking data from more than one source. They're sort of multidimensional in their outlook. So not only can the data off of a Garmin or a Fitbit or an Actigraph or whatever get messy if it's not properly stewarded. Maybe you lose timestamps, you lose provenance, the shape of the data is not ready for research and you have to do a lot of wrangling but you know you know my favorite example of let's say you're doing an asthma study and you want to merge at home air monitor data with real-time gps data and collide that with pollution maps well, now you've got you've got a pretty potentially messy data situation. And I do agree that platforms ultimately are going to do the reconciling and the normalization work in an automated way so that you can hot load into your notebook of choice and start doing analysis. But we're just not there yet in many cases.
1: Right. And, and I think what we're seeing is that groups tend to reinvent the wheel every time they do a study. Uh, your asthma example is a good one where um, I, I bet if any group were to do that study, they would themselves have to go out and collect the pollution data. They would have to figure out how to incorporate air monitor data. They would have to figure out how to leverage GPS data. What we're talking about is the need for a platform that can take all those data Um, uh, agnostically and basically provide an analytics platform for the data that could then be reused uh, for the next for the next study or for the next application. And I think the field is really moving in that direction um, because it's just too expensive to keep reinventing this every single time.
0: Before we get into the rest of the episode, we wanted to take a quick break with our co-founder Daphne Kiss in a segment called The Dose, where Daphne gives us her take on the freshest news from the pharma industry. Daphne, take it away.
2: This week, Stat News published an article entitled, Early Data Suggest Wearables Can Catch Some Cases of COVID-19 Before Symptoms Emerge. It's a really interesting study, uh, actually three independent studies from uh, UCSF, Stanford, and Scripps uh, Institute. And each of them was looking using uh, uh, either Apple Watches, Fitbits, Garmins, or the Aura Ring. And large studies, large participants, not that many um, results in the end, but a relatively high, 76% uh, predictive rate of COVID-19. And of course, this phenomenon is is it could turn out to be extraordinarily meaningful. Instead of having people stick their thermometers on your head every time you walk into a store or into a doctor's office, um, imagine a time where you can just display your vitals on a screen uh, in the same way that you would you know, pick up an order from Seamless at a restaurant or show your electronic ticket to get into a concert. And uh, this is information that it makes total sense that we possess. Um, And I think what's significant about it is that we're really coming close to both the consumer, a collaborative environment between the consumer and the pharmaceutical companies and healthcare providers, where we are carrying our data around and making that at our discretion available uh, and verifiable in ways that we haven't been able to do before. So um, that combined with patients' uh, self-reported symptoms uh, could go well beyond COVID and help us to work with lots of other uh, conditions and chronic conditions uh, where patients are the purveyors, not even in a study necessarily or in, in a, a very controlled environment, but are able to share that data. And what previously was why you went into a doctor's office in order to share your heart rate and have it monitored in an EKG and, and your, your uh, temperature, et cetera, you would now be regularly carrying that information just part as part of your sort of biometric data. And uh, you know this market is picking up because um, even in isolated ways, people are trying to take control of their health. I, the other day, saw a commercial for Cardia Mobile, and it's an $80 freestanding display where basically what it's doing is measuring your heart rate, which, of course, has been positioned by the company as measuring your EKG, um, so that you feel, again, it's a, a demonstration of feeling in control of your medical care in medical terms. And I think that phenomenon is is going to be incredibly uh, important moving forward. And in some sense, COVID uh, is giving us the opportunity to report that with a lot of apps, but also with the use of devices that um, are passively measuring that data uh, on a a constant basis, uh, coupled with our reporting how we feel. I do think there are a lot of questions there and you wonder things like people need to know what their natural base temperature is. Some people are higher, some people are lower. And to really educate people about what that data might mean. um, I think there are probably a lot of questions around hormonal conditions that um, certainly for women raise and lower body temperature in ways that are Uh, just predictive of a a hot flash, but not necessarily of having COVID-19. So there's a lot of work to be done, but it's very promising. And this very disruptive environment we are in right now bodes well for the use of devices, uh, both in formal clinical settings and in more um, informal settings for consumers to start having providing that data on an ongoing basis to their healthcare providers, insurance companies, et cetera. Very interesting to watch as it rolls out and progresses. Thank you for joining us this week on The Dose. See you next time.
0: I do want to give a little bit of love to two companies in particular having to do with the report. The first is Garmin. Um, Garmin has issued a special research SDK that does a novel thing that we haven't really seen before where you're able to, and Litmus has done this, um, you're able to use their SDK to program devices, in in our case, Vivo Smart um, 4s, and um, we're able to get data off the Garmin device directly to the Litmus server without it ever touching any Garmin infrastructure. And to me, that was a really promising sign of what ought to happen increasingly industry-wide. Do you agree?
1: Yeah, I mean the so as you as you say the SDK or the software development kit that Garmin provides uh, allows a, a level of device access that we don't usually see uh, in consumer-level wearables. And basically that allows a company like ours, like Litmus, to essentially program the device however we want and get the data in in as raw form as possible from the device onto our own servers without ever having to be transformed through Garmin servers. And that's critically important for a clinical trial. Um, It's the ability to know the lineage of the data and how it was moved and that you were able to get the data without going through any uh, any transformations. And I think that uh, hopefully we're going to start to see um, other types of access through other wearables. The other thing that the SDK allows you to do is it allows you to control what it is exactly that the, um, that the research subject is seeing. So you may not want the research subject to see information about the wearable and about their steps and about their sleep, Uh, because maybe that would affect how the study is going. And so you could actually turn those off if you wanted. And and we haven't done that in any of our trials yet. But if the sponsor wanted to do that, we could do that through the SDK, another another very important aspect.
0: So how daunting is it? Let's say I am getting relatively low-level, high-quality data, and I don't want to rely on someone else's black box. So I'm a clinical researcher. And now I'm stuck like redefining steps or redefining sleep from scratch, which is not what I set about to do in my research or in my life in general. So what am I up against and how hard is that really?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's not trivial, right? Because these companies spend millions of dollars to develop their own algorithms. And in fact, that's the that's often the secret sauce or the differentiator between these companies is what they can offer the consumer in terms of process data and what, uh, what kind of metrics they can measure. So it's not, it's not trivial. If a company really wants to understand how a patient is sleeping, uh, you need to understand that sleep is going to be some sort of combination of minute to minute heart rate data and movement data. And you have to understand how to take those data and turn it into a usable metric. So for most, um, for most groups that are performing clinical trials, this is going to be way outside their comfort zone and not something that they're going to want to handle on their own. They're going to want to outsource it to a, a group like ours or a group that has experience taking uh, taking these um, these data from wearables and turning them into metrics for a trial.
0: Like, Why do you think it really is that no one... I mean, right, like the ideal wearable would be smooth, thin easy to wear, likely to be highly adherent. It would not give the user too much information back about their own behavior. It would um, give relatively low-level data or allow the researcher to choose the level of data that's appropriate or the rate of sampling that is appropriate for their work. It would offer pure adulterated data that has gone through no transformation but it would also offer transformation um, modules or transform data with documentation about what had been done and it would either have its own software or be um, closely partnered with software to be able to um, transition data from the device to a sort of analytical environment elegantly without losing anything and. You know, creating standards or standardized data in the process, like why is it really? I mean, come on, like someone should have done that already, why not Sam?
1: yeah, I mean I think the 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 field um, in, in some ways the field is is ripe for the emergence of a of a generalized wearable that's uh, appropriate for a broad range of clinical trials in the way that you described uh but you know, the consumer-level wearable companies have very little interest in putting a lot of R and D into these wearables, just because, compared to the money that they make from the end-level sports enthusiast or 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 general consumer, it's it's a tiny fraction of, of of what they what they can make there. So, I don't expect I don't expect Garmin or Fitbit to come out with the with the latest and greatest uh, wearable for a clinical trial, um, although it's something that they certainly could do. Uh, and then you, then you look at the companies that already make wearables for clinical trials, like as you mentioned, Actigraph and, and uh, being, being one of the main players, uh, you know, they, they uh, ha- have to produce a wearable that can collect data for a, such a broad range of studies that by the time they incorporate all the features that are needed, it's bulky, it has uh, a need to move data too quickly, and um, and it's just not uh, efficient in the ways that you describe. So I think there's just a, a confluence of factors that's made it um, inhospitable. For any company to do what you describe, but I don't think it's technically. Impossible, And I think if a company wanted to come in and make a wearable that measured, say, st- step count and, and heart rate and then uh, was able to do that in a way where the battery lasted uh, a month instead of uh, a couple days and was able to produce something that was easy to wear where the data were clearly um, uh, non-transformed, I think it could be done relatively in a relatively straightforward way. I just don't see anybody spending the effort and money to do something like that right now. So instead, we're left with all of the um, shortcomings that you've been discussing describing.
0: Actrograph came closer this time around. They have a new device called the Centerpoint Insight Watch, which is less bulky. It's pretty darn good looking. It feels really nice, but it loses um, some sensor information like heart rate that we think is super important. Why is heart rate so important to us? In this device census, as in last one, if you didn't have heart rate, we decided you couldn't be a finalist.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we found that heart rate is one of the key elements for um, for often for calculating things like like uh, sleep quality, minute to minute heart rate or variation gets actually, can be an indicator of other problems with, uh, with health or with uh, changing health status. So we think, we think heart rate is actually quite important and we did not want to consider wearables that didn't have a, um, a, a way to measure heart rate. So that was sort of our minimum requirement was a heart rate sensor and an accelerometer. Uh, without, the, without either of those two, we think that the wearable is not really useful for general clinical trials. The
0: two companies that are coming probably the closest, in my opinion, to the ideal are Apple and Google. Google's the most interesting case because they have a wearable called the Google Study Watch that they are using as part of their baseline study being run out of Duke University in North Carolina. And I think overseen by our friend Rob Kale, a former... Um, head of the FDA, but Google's Study Watch has only been exposed internally to Google-funded and Google-run studies. It's not made been made available to any outside third parties. And Apple is pretty darn close to having the perfect device um, for clinical research too. Their data quality is really great. Their documentation is really great. All of the tooling around their APIs and their SDKs is really great. But the problem is you're confined to the Apple ecosystem. You can't pair an Apple watch with an Android phone. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about why that matters, Sam.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you basically would alienate you know well more than half of the people that you'd want to study we already have problems with many research studies um, uh, favoring uh, favoring gr- uh, some groups over others and i think if you started to uh, uh, have a requirement that the that the research subject had a very expensive phone and a very expensive watch that uh, you wouldn't be able to measure the kinds of things you wanted to measure across a broad diverse population so so while the Apple Watch is quite attractive in that it's being used for many different types of research studies, and it has great sensors, and it has a great data lineage, so you can get pretty untra- you know, fairly untransformed data, uh, it's just not practical for a broad clinical trial because it's going to exclude uh, a major portion of the population. So I think the answer there is either that uh, Apple would figure out a way to... Um, uh, either get the data from the watch itself without needing the phone or uh, be able to interface with Android phones, which I don't see coming anytime soon. Uh, but hopefully on the Android side, something like the Apple Watch will emerge that has the same level of data transparency um, so that there can be a way to, uh, to, to, to perform studies um, without regard to the kind of platform that the patient has.
0: Your option today, if you're committed to the Apple Watch, and many people want to be, is honestly just to spend a lot of money. It can be done by provisioning an Apple phone to everyone in the study or the trial who does not possess an Apple phone, or perhaps you're in a situation where you're provisioning 100% of devices, although we recommend against that and are obviously in favor of an increasingly BYOD world, but you can provision Apple Watches and Apple phones for non-Apple users or for everyone, and then. You have the cost, however, of supplying an iPhone and an Apple Watch to every participant. And for most groups, that gets into levels of spend that are not sustainable or not possible at all.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just think it's gonna be prohibitive. And then the kind of devices that are provisioned when they do provision Apple devices, I don't even think would be the kind that would very successfully pair with a modern Apple Watch. So you're talking now, uh, a level of expense for a large clinical trial that's just not going to be practical.
0: That's right, especially if you're doing a large observational study, or you know you're working on something that doesn't have you know absolute blockbuster potential and can therefore justify the expense on the front end. I totally agree that the Android ecosystem is the most promising in terms of something that could um, match all of our criteria, and of course we'll be watching it carefully month after month as we do.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that um, our latest, uh, you know, the latest trial that we're running, um, you know, we, we have uh, both Android and Apple options, because we wanted to make sure that we could include everybody. And I think that's going to have to be the way forward is, uh, is to be able to include both platforms.
0: The URA ring has um, picked up a lot of steam in terms of measuring sleep in particular, and its accuracy and its data are nice. That definitely makes one of our finalists. And then there's an um, uh, honorable mention called the Whoop, which is really tuned towards a fitness audience and really isn't putting a lot of time, effort, or energies and organization into clinical trials, which is also something we look at in terms of um, what we recommend, sort of organizational commitment to this work. Work. but um, the whoop you're seeing in terms of citations and literature and also just anecdotal usage we hear when talking to customers and prospects the whoop has picked up too so there are a few there like ura could um, certainly expand their commitment to, to clinical research and you know provide more tooling and better you know documentation and whoop you know has a really great device in, in almost every respect and if they you know started taking the clinical market um, seriously i think they could definitely make some moves and of course i'm, I'm really bullish about garmin because i think garmin allowing us to do what we're doing with garmin is novel and if they continue to build upon that i think they can build a really nice business that's really the reason sam i think no one's built the perfect device yet however is that it's competitive and you know different device makers are strategically deciding to compete on different vectors and you know, while I certainly think that the perfect wear- clinical wearable, if it was put out there, would sort of take the market by storm, Apple has a vested interest in keeping people on the, inside the Apple ecosystem and connected to Apple products. Garmin has a certain vested interest in selling a lot more Garmin devices. Um, they're not necessarily in the software business, for example. So there are when you look at each organization and their sort of strategic roadmap of, as an organization and who they compete with and how, it explains a lot too, I think, in terms of not yet seeing the perfect device.
1: Yeah, but if Garmin, Samsung, or Fitbit uh, really decided to, to take their um, massive R&D that they've put into their wearables and and produce a, a, str- a stripped-down version of a wearable with a long battery life with very few features and the ability to move untransformed data, uh, I think they would have a real hit on their hands. And I think that, um, that there's this... You know, Garmin's most expensive watch is over thousand dollars. I mean, they're they're putting a ton of money into features that just are not relevant for a clinical trial. And they could uh, they could devote, I think, a, a small amount of capital and R and D money into producing a, um, a, a research device, and I think it could be highly successful.
0: I'll never forget our CTO in the earliest days of Litmus, sitting alone at his desk in a near empty room and suddenly like just screaming out to the whole world, why won't someone just sell me a dumb bucket of sensors? (laughs) And I think in many ways he would still have the same request today. It's interesting because Google bought Fitbit this past year since the last report, and we've been carefully watching to see what happens at Fitbit organizationally and what happens with Fitbit in terms of their posture towards the clinical research market. and We haven't seen yet much movement there. Um, we've had a few calls and we've met a few people and they're definitely laying plans. But um, in terms of what researchers can buy and experience and leverage from Fitbit today, there hasn't been much of a change yet.
1: Nope. And I assume it's coming and I assume there's a, obviously a very strong long-range plan there. And, and we're obviously, we're very interested in seeing what that is.
0: Well, I I think the reality is, Sam, we're probably going to end up updating this report at a faster and faster frequency as time goes on. You know, when we first started this, you know, there was a question about will people wear wearables and sort of how long will they wear them? Are they even viable? And sort of the phase we're at now is tons and tons of validation studies have taken place. Lots of people have used wearables and connected their data to traditional endpoints. Some people have started to develop new digital endpoints or make predictions. We're sort of, we're seeing a maturation of this market and a maturation of the kinds of usage that we always envisioned happening. And that to me is the most exciting part.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I agree that we're gonna to need to keep updating this report, but surprisingly, the field actually has sort of narrowed in terms of the kinds of the devices that we put in the report, um, just because we lost some players in the game and, and, and some other wearables just um, didn't have the features that we felt were worthy to include for a clinical trials device. So I think the field is going to continue to tighten, um, but the kinds of um, devices and features are going to continue to grow. So, yeah, I assume we'll be back sooner this time to, to update what we found.
0: I totally agree. What we saw this time for you listeners is more SKUs, more item level devices under fewer brands. So you're seeing sort of organizational consolidation. So, but more SKUs for Garmin, more SKUs for Fitbit, more SKUs for Actigraph. And I think that that trend is likely to continue, too. Well, thanks for catching up, Sam. This is a great conversation. Is there anything you would leave clinical researchers with in terms of a single piece of advice that's most important as they begin to look at different devices for their research?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously biased, Josh, but I think that uh, unless, a research, unless a researcher has... Um, uh, tremendous experience doing this. I'd have to strongly recommend that they, um, that they try to get some uh, advice from some a group that's been doing this, uh, because I think it'll help them define their metrics and help them uh, pick the best wearable for the study and help them um, write their protocol. And uh, you can't ask for that help early enough. And I think we found, Josh, you and I have found, as we've worked through companies starting trials, that the earlier you start doing that, um, establish that relationship, the better.
0: 100% agree. For me, it'd be about user acceptance or sort of ergonomics. You know, I've worn wearables for a long time and I always sort of thought, you know, they're great. It's like wearing a watch, no big deal. But what we've seen with um, Litmus's customers and a lot of our partners and the folks we talk to in the field is um, they have used wearables once or twice or even three times and seen significant rates of just drop off where someone just said you know what forget it i'm not wearing this thing at night i can't sleep the right way it's totally screwing me up i can't type (laughs) um you, you know the adherence is really a problem and so that's always been surprising to me i sort of thought that the the form factor and the comfort and the the sort of um the ability to forget it, you know, as someone who's wearing a wearable during a study or trial, I always thought that would have been solved by now. And yet we continue to hear lots of stories about trials and studies that lost a significant number of participants because they just weren't willing to charge the thing, put up with it, sleep with it, whatever was required. And so my one piece of advice would be to really think about ergonomics and user acceptance and adherence. It's still a bigger challenge than I would have thought by 2020. And I expect that to continue to to be the case. Most people, you know, I think they wear these things in their day-to-day life in a non-research environment, but they take it off. Sometimes they take it off for longer stretches of time. If you're asking someone to wear something continuously for six weeks, um, you better make sure it fits. You better make sure that it's comfortable. You better make sure it feels good.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think those are really important points and I think they're going to continue to be very important for the, for the clinical trial world at stake
0: here, obviously, is the broader vision I think we have, and certainly you have, where you know the whole world is basically one contiguous, never-ending clinical trial, which obviously requires sort of a, a facility with BYOD devices and the ability to rationalize them to trials from a security perspective, from a compliance perspective, and the ability to do really good data science with them. We're certainly further along than we were, and we've come a long way since we started Litmus Sam, but there's a long way to go too, and we look forward to continuing
1: to report back to everyone. Yep. Well put, Josh.
2: Thanks again for joining us
1: on this episode of Trial by Data presented by Litmus Health. If you enjoyed the show,
2: please follow us on SoundCloud and visit our blog at litmushealth.com.